Uh, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to be starting in the book of 1 Samuel. This is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. This whole thing, 1 and 2 Samuel, is one of those places that I, I just, I've, I, I couldn't wait to get here because it just speaks of the, the difficulty, you know, certainly Samuel's life, which we're going to be getting into in the first several chapters, and we'll see his character uh, quite a bit as he uh, ministers to David and, and ministers to Saul and uh, anointing them and, and just the life of, of the nation going from Saul and, and the things that the nation of Israel is learning throughout this whole process. And it's a real difficult learning thing for them. And um, we just finished the book of Judges, which is really a, a history of Israel during the time of uh, a certain period of time after they had come into the land, and it was really a time of failure for them. And even now that we're starting in uh, the book of uh, 1 Samuel, we're right on the heels of that era of the judges. And so things really haven't changed a, a whole great deal nationally. They're still struggling with compromise, still struggling with sin, and, and, and the people of Israel are getting frustrated, and they want a king like all the other nations and it's an unfortunate thing when the people of God want something that God has not designed for them. It's an unfortunate thing when we desire something that God says, that God says, am I enough for you? And we, uh, we say, no, you're really not. And we, we prove that. And, the, and, and before we get on the case of the Israelites, the truth of the matter is the heart of man, unrepentant, un, a heart that is not born again, that is true of all of us. It's not just the Jews. This could have happened to the Greeks. It could have happened to the Italians. It could have happened to the Germans. It doesn't matter what people group, because the Bible says that we have all sinned, right? We, we all have the same problem. And so it doesn't matter what group it is. But we're looking at this uh, book this evening, 1 Samuel. Tradition, tradition has it that Samuel wrote the book. Uh, first and Second Samuel, but we can't be too dogmatic about that because we know that in First Samuel chapter twenty-five, uh, Samuel passes from the scene, and so somebody, and there's good reason to believe that maybe Nathan or Gad, the, these, these prophets, maybe they finished the the history here because this is really the history of Israel, and we're going to learn a lot about ourselves, and we're going to learn a lot about the history of Israel, but we're going to see God's hand in it all, and we're going to see that he's still redeeming. In fact, the Bible is a, is a book of redemption, and as we go through First Samuel, you're going to see that. It's about redemption. It's about redeeming. God is always redeeming, and his plan is unfolding. And remember, when we looked at Ruth, we saw that uh, in Ruth's lineage was not only David, King David, but ultimately it would be Jesus Christ, this Moabite Gentile woman who was poor, who was a widow, who was looked down upon, and now she's in the bloodline of Jesus Christ, along with Rahab the harlot, along with Bathsheba, along with Tamar, And God is a God of grace, isn't he? I love the fact that he left those names in there because it, it drives the person who is bent on legalism. Do you know legalism will kill you? If you're the type of person that is bound up in legalism where everything is just, you know, like this and you, and, and, and you, just, you frown at everything and everything makes you upset, 
you got to really examine your heart. Now, granted, we live in a world that is not good, and there's good reason to be discouraged. But you know something? The Spirit of God coming upon the heart can change a heart. And it's true that things are tough, but we got to remember that we serve another master, and he has told us what's coming. So that alone, knowing that he's in control, let the joy of, of the Lord be your strength. His joy. When he sees us being strong, in him, it brings him joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. <laughs> Interesting. So, the author, we believe, is Samuel, who also penned the book of Ruth. Now, when this book was written, we can't, it's not really conclusive. We know the date of events that this book covers is fairly identifiable. We know that that begins with the birth of Samuel, which is about 1105 B.C., and 2 Samuel ends with David's last words, and that happened, uh, when David passed away is around 971 B.C. So we got about 135 years of history that we're going to be looking at in the first and second Samuel. But when it was actually written down, because you write something down after the fact, don't you? Most of the time. And so this was written down sometime, it could be as early as before the Assyrian captivity, when the, the Jews went into captivity in Assyria in 722 B.C. So sometime between 931 to 722 B.C., perhaps then, perhaps even later in time during when they were in their Babylonian captivity. It could have been then, too. Don't really know for sure, but those are two very good uh, places. In this book, we're going to find three main characters. We're going to find Samuel, whose birth we see in the very first chapter. We're going to see Saul's. We're going to see Saul's career. It's a short career. And then we're going to see David, which is my favorite character in this account. We'll see the ministry of Samuel and the beginning of the monarchy under Saul. We'll see that David is anointed. Uh, he's anointed king by Samuel, but he's not officially coronated as he will be on the run from Saul, who was a jealous madman uh, when it comes to David. He was just so jealous of David for various reasons. We'll look at that. And finally, the book um, ends with Saul and his sons killed by the Philistines. And so it... Um, Let's get right into it now. Let's look at chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And also the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all his sons, all her sons, excuse me, and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. Underline that. He loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, and therefore she wept and she did not eat. 
What an interesting story as we go here. Now, please understand, I say the word story, and if you know me, I hate the word story. We use it just as a, in our English language, we use story, even though we mean a, a historical event. But I want to make that very clear. This is not an allegory. This is history. And when you read the Bible, you need to read it that way, especially when, we, when we're into these books right now. This is history. This is not made up. And God put these things in here for our nurture, for our admonition, so we can see, number one, who we are, and we can also see how God works in the life of those who love him and those who are aloof from him. We can see how gracious he is, even to, uh, even to those who spurn his offer of salvation. God is very gracious. Is he not? Has he been gracious to you? How, how old were you when you came to Christ? For me, it was 24 and I look back on those 24 years, those first years where I lived like a demon, <laughs> and I think of how, how God was so kind to me. I, I, re I reaped, is that right? Is that, I, I reaped? I reaped what I sowed? Is that right? I reaped what I sowed. There's no doubt about it, but he was gracious. He was compassionate with me. He was always doing things to let me know that he was there, but I ignored him until 24 and we all have similar stories, but God is a God of grace. He loves you, and I love that about him. Isn't it the grace of God that has captured you? Has he captured you? Does he still have you? Or are you trying to wiggle away out of his covering? People do that, don't they? We like to have the salvation. We like to know that, our secure, that we're secure in Christ. We like to know that we're going to heaven. But then we don't act like a Christian. And so we have to be very careful. We have to ask the Lord, Lord, am I really one of yours? And if I am, Lord, help me to make changes in my life if necessary. And so let's look at the first verse here again. We've read that, that uh, verses 1 through 7. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, There was a man of Ramathaim Zophim, which is really just another name for Ramah. Ramah, this town, which is about 25 miles north of Jerusalem. And it's in the mountains of Ephraim. And there's a man there named Elkanah, the son of Joram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Tuf, or Zuf, excuse me, an Ephraimite. So he's an Ephraimite because he lives in Ephraim, but by birth he is a Levite. He's a Levite. In fact, in First Chronicles uh, chapter 6, beginning in verse 31, let me read this to you. It says, Now these are the men who David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord. And only those Levites were able to serve in the temple, in the tabernacle. And we're going to see, as we just read that little, short little genealogy in chapter, or in verse 1, excuse me, we're going to see it again here. And, and we're going to see it goes on and on all the way back to Levi, which is important because it tracks his lineage back to Levi, which gives him the right to serve the way he does. It said, now, the, uh, 1 Chronicles 6, verse 31. Now, these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord. And this is many years after where we are currently located. 
After the ark came to rest, and they were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting, until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they served in their office. Uh, they had offices. They had uh, timings. There were so many of them that they had their courses. They did these things in, in a, in a round-robin kind of fashion, groups of men, groups of Levites doing certain things. And notice in verse 33, and these are the ones who ministered with their sons. Of the sons of the Kohathites were He-Man, the singer, or Heman. I like to call it He-Man because I, I envision this guy with big muscles, big vocal cords, and he's got this voice like Ken Graves, you know. You know, so I, I kind of think of him as the he-man, the singer. He's the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. Notice this, verse 34. This is where Elkanah comes in. The son of Elkanah, who is also the son of Jehoram, the son of Eliel, the son of Toa, the son of Zuth, the son of Elkanah, the son of Mahath. And, son, and he goes all the way down to the son, to, to Levi himself. And so we see this man's lineage. And why is that important? Because his son, as we're going to see here shortly, is also a Levite as well. And Samuel, at a very early age, is going to be serving in the, in the tabernacle that is set up in Shiloh. And there's no way that he could do that unless he was a what? A Levite. He had to be a Levite, right? And so, but notice, concerning Elkanah, verse 2, it says, but he had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Notice, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. So why did this Levite, this good man, what's going on here that he's got two wives? What is a Levite doing with two wives? Well, there were times in the ancient uh, times and during this period of time where if a wife was barren, a man oftentimes would, would have another wife with who he could have uh, children by. And it could be that that was what was the deal here because we do know that Hannah was barren, uh, but Penina was uh, able to have children and she had a number of children. And um, it could have been that too. It could have, that could have been the reason but he's also supposed to have the moral high ground, isn't he, as, as a Levite? He's supposed to be the example. But again, this is on the heels of the judges. So uh, the, the whole spiritual temperature of this time period is still very tepid. It's not really on fire. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was that way, but a handful of people were like little blazes of fire in the hand of God, and others were just kind of lost and, and going through the motions. But God originally designed marriage between one man and one wife. One man and one wife. Genesis tells us that in the first chapter, in verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. And I say this today because this scripture needs to be echoed throughout all of our land because all of our land and most of the world is so inundated by the lie that it's okay as long as I love another person. It doesn't matter whether they're a male and a male or a female and a female or a 24-year-old male and a 14-year-old male, California, that is. Did you hear about that recently? I won't go there, but they just passed a law where you can be you can be, uh, it was on the books from 1944 that you could be 24 years old and have a intimate relationship, and you know what that means, with a 14-year-old, whether it was a you know, heterosexual kind of deal. But uh, the governor recently passed, just a few days ago, that you could actually, if they were the, of the same sex, that's fine. 
And so now you can have a man who's 24 years old and a young boy who's 14 years old. Can you believe that? It is so disgusting. So disgusting. But anyway, I say that because this needs to be spoken in all of our land. Again, you all know it. Praise the Lord. But God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and notice, subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And Jesus, in Mark's gospel, in chapter 10, he said the same thing to the Pharisees. He says, From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And I love this. And the two shall become one flesh. Congratulations again, you two, because God has made you two one flesh now. Isn't that wonderful? And it is a good thing. And when you do it in God's way and in God's order, God, you get God's blessing. That's what I love about obeying the word of God. You obey it, you get blessed. If you disobey, then you got troubles. And the world is full of troubles. Why? Because people aren't listening. They're not obeying the word of God. And the two shall become flesh so that when they are no longer two but one, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's the mandate. That's the thing. And whenever man has transgressed this very simple, simple and logical command, it more often than not results in problems. And we're going to see that in this chapter and going forward that, you know, the Lord knew what he was talking about when he made it such. Male and female, together, they leave and cleave. They leave their parents. They come together. So important for us to understand that. And whenever, we, whenever anybody in the, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, whenever there is more than one wife, one, more than one spouse, problems happen. Problems happen, and it happens all the time. We see it in Genesis. Remember with a- Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Sarah couldn't have children, so Sarah gets so frustrated, she finally looks over at her handmaid, Hagar, the Egyptian, and she knows the promises of God, Sarah does, and she's thinking, well, since I can't have a child, then go in unto her and have a child. And he obeys her. He goes in and, and they have Ishmael. But in, invariably, problems ensued, and we see that in Genesis 21, verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who was Ishmael, whom she had already borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight. And so it creates family problems. It creates family problems. We see the same thing with Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah have this game with Jacob, and they're, 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 almost, they're, they're vying for affection based on how many children they can have by Jacob. And they're playing these games, and you read the account in Genesis 30, and they're just going back and forth, and there's such strife in the home. Leah and Rachel fighting with each other, and Jacob. Can you imagine the headache of coming home to that, being out in the field and coming home and have two wives not speaking to you because you said something to one and the other whispered about it or whatever? It's just, it's not a good thing. God made a marriage, one man and one woman. And we're going to see the tension. And let's look at the really incredible example is Solomon. 
Bible tells us in 1 Kings that he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's entertaining like 2.75 wives every day. Having them at your table, because you can't have them all probably. Oh, what's your name again? You know, your face looks familiar, but I haven't seen you in like three years. What's your name again? It just isn't right. God made things very simple for us. And he made, uh, and this man had two wives, uh, Hannah. Her name means grace, and I love that. She's going to experience the grace of God. And Penina, her, the other woman who Elkanah had married, her name means jewel. And notice that, but Hannah had no children. And to be barren, barren or childless in a Jewish culture was tantamount to God's curse being upon you. That's really the way it was. She would be valued less in the culture. And because of human nature, people would look down upon her, and she would be in contempt of her peers as they looked upon her. There must be something wrong with you. Have you ever had anybody do that to you? Look, look down upon you? Maybe you're in middle school. Maybe there was some identifying mark about you. Maybe you look funny. Maybe you weren't that cute. Maybe you were gorgeous. Either way, you got all this attention, and sometimes it just is not good for you to receive all that attention. And people like to, to, to draw out those distinctions, especially young kids, and they torture you with them. Happened to me when I was little. I mean, think of a name like Kellogg. I mean, how many times was I walking along the, you know, the going from class to class by the lockers and hear somebody go, hey, cornflake. Hey, snap, crackle, and pop. Hey, sugar smacks. Those are all Kellogg cereals, by the way. And I'd encourage you to get Cocoa Puffs because those are really good. You can hear them crackle when you pour milk on them. But anyway... But they, she was valued less, uh, Hannah, because of her barrenness. And to further exasperate things, the law said the following. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12, it said this, and it was in, in relationship to God's blessings of obedience. Notice what it said in, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. It shall come to pass, because you listen to these commandments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you the covenant Keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers, and he will love you, and he will bless you and multiply you. He will also, notice this, bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine, your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give. And so here's Hannah, barren, knowing very well the scripture, thinking to herself, God must hate me. I must have done something wrong. And you know, we jump to those conclusions. We shouldn't jump to those conclusions. Do you think God was upset with Hannah? I don't think he was upset with her. But sometimes God will take somebody who is doing everything right. They got a great heart. And he'll cause them to go through a crucible in front of everybody. And he's refining, isn't he? Some people say, well... You know, why does, why does God do bad, you know, allow bad things to, to good people? And the problem is there's really no good people because the Bible says all have fallen short, right? But he's always doing stuff. And I love what he did in Hannah's life because she really became a trophy. And where did she go when she's undergoing this scrutiny, this pain? Did she run and, and get on her phone and call her girlfriends and say, can you believe what Penina said to me today? She said, I look fat right? You're fat. You can't have children. 
No, where did she go? She ran right to the Lord. She ran right to him. And that is the best thing she should have done. And that she did. We know that later on, after all of this that we're going to read, that Hannah later on had five other kids. It tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Uh, verses 20 and 21, it says, And the Lord visited Hannah, and this is after the birth of Samuel, who we're going to get to in just a few moments. It says, The Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child grew before the Lord. And this is after she brought him to Shiloh and dedicated him to the Lord. But notice in verse 3, it says, This man, Elkanah, he went up from his city, which is Ramah, yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And also the two sons of Eli, who were Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Three times in the year, Jewish males were supposed to go up to Israel, or up to the tabernacle or the temple. And in Exodus, it tells us that. For one, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover, uh, the Feast of Harvest, which is you and I know as Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Ingathering, which we also know as the Feast of Tabernacles, those three feasts, every Jewish male was supposed to go up yearly to take place in those, uh, those feasts. And they went up to Shiloh. This word is actually a proper noun, and it's also the name of a place. Shiloh is a, is a word that means the peaceful one. And not only was it a city, but it was also a name for Jesus Christ. Until Shiloh come, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a word denoting the Messiah. And this is ultimately where the tabernacle, after the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, had come into the land, promised land. After their brief stint at Gilgal, the, the ark finally came to rest in Shiloh. And that's where they set up the tabernacle. And that's where it was for quite a long time before it was stolen by the Philistines. So let's look at these three men here, this Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. We find that Eli was the high priest during that time, and his two sons, uh, also Levites, they were, they were men serving, uh, they were priests as well. And Eli, unfortunately, was not a good example, and his sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, were not good examples either. We'll see later the trouble that they got in and, and the moral decrepitness that was in them and the things, the horrible things that they did right within the tabernacle. And Eli just kind of turned a blind eye to it. And whenever a father, whenever a parent turns a blind, a blind eye to something like this in, in their child's life and they do nothing about it, they are storing up for themselves a bumper crop a bumper crop of sin, and the, and the consequences are going to be huge. And we're going to see later it cost these men their lives. Verse 4, it says, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. As they would go up to the tabernacle in Shiloh, he would give them uh, a lamb and, uh, and other things, and grain and things of, the, of that nature to offer up on the altar in Shiloh. And it's interesting, too, that this is the last time we hear Penina's name mentioned in Scripture. We don't hear anything of her, her sons, her daughters at all. She's no longer mentioned, um, perhaps because of her heart attitude, but I think a, a bigger reason is that really the narrative here is to show 
um, Samuel and, and, and Samuel's life. And so one thing I love about the Bible, as you read, even the genealogies in the Old Testament, you'll notice that he winnows down. He quickly gets down to a fine point. He takes a, a lot of people, and he comes down, and he's narrowing it down to Shem. <laughs> I've noticed this in, in Genesis. It just blew my mind, you know. It spent a lot of, you know, talked about Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their, and their family trees, but then it just kind of ignores that. It doesn't go straight through, and then all of a sudden it just, it really hones in on Shem. And why? Because it's through Shem that the Messiah would come. And everything in the Bible is like that. It, it, it's, it, it's, there's a broad paintbrush at first, and it quickly narrows it down to show you the plan of redemption. And that's what God is doing right now. He's totally getting Penina out of the way and her sons and daughters because ultimately it's Samuel. Samuel, this, this man of a great integrity, considered the last judge of Israel and also the first major prophet of Israel. And... and um, But notice to Hannah, he, give a, he gave a double portion, for he loved Hannah. I, I love this. You know, in, in the Greek language, the word love can be, um, there's several different Greek words that we translate the word love. But in the, in the Hebrew, there's only one word for love. And it's ahav, or ahava. And it means love, and, it, and it's a very broad word. But at the very essence of it, the significance, the root word of it is love with the intention of giving, not so much forgetting. It's about giving. And it's so unlike the love that we see in America, where we, we call it love, but really what it is is arrows most of the time. It's a selfish kind of love. What can you do for me? What can I get from you instead of giving isn't that what love is? For God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So the very fact that God loved, he loved with a sacrificial heart. It was always in giving. And that's so different from any other word in any other language. And so the Hebrew has one word for love. You look at it in the Hebrew, anytime you see love in the Old Testament, it's this word, ahav, or ahava. And having children was a sign of God's blessing. And her barrenness, uh, again, was considered a curse. I love what it says in Psalm 127. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, the, the, the fruit of the loom, the fruit of the womb. Boy, the fruit of the womb is, is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Children are a heritage to the Lord. But to Hannah... He would give a double portion, for he loved her, although the Lord had closed her womb. It kind of reminds me of, remember Job? Job said this in Job 13. He says, though he slay me, Job speaking of God, he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And it reminded me of, you know, the Lord, uh, you know, um, uh, Elkanah loved Hannah, although the Lord closed her womb. It's kind of like a paradox, isn't it? It's like, he loved her even though this happened, you know. Even though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. 
And see, that's really where faith kicks in. That's really where our trust in the Lord really kicks in. It's not when everything is going well. That is easy. Anybody can do that. But it's when we, Christians, go through difficulty. When we go through things that are just grinding us right into the ground. When we are just without, uh, you know, our hearts are just completely broken. I mean, I was looking at Connie Beck and, and just seeing, you know, losing the love of her life of 40 years. And then... Less, about a month later, she loses a sister. And about a year before that, she lost a daughter. And now she's got another relative. It's not looking so good. Keep her in your prayers. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff. And we can't make this up. We don't have the God knows what he's doing. And it's not for us to say, you know, Lord, I don't really think I want that in my life. I'd much rather have the beach house with a nice car that runs and, uh, you know, crack crab by the seashore. That's kind of what I would like. And he's like, you know what, if if I gave you that, Rob, you wouldn't even know me at all. You wouldn't know the depths of my grace. You wouldn't know the depths of my love. But it's in those difficulties. It's always in the things that crush us. That's why I like Job He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And at the end, he says, you know what? I've heard you with the hearing in my ear, but now I see you. Now I have a better, way better understanding than anybody on the earth at that time. And that man went through everything. He lost it all. He lost even his bodily health, his physical health. And yet God was surely with him. And notice verse 6, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Who was her rival? Who's her rival? Penina. Her rival provoked her severely. This word literally means vexation, grief. It, it is an indignation. It's, it's wrath. That's really what it is. Frustration. It's, it's at your wit's end. So Penina did this. She provoked Hannah severely. It wasn't enough just to kind of, you know, she taunted her daily with it. Have you ever been taunted daily with something that somebody just, it's like, a, it's like um, lemon juice on a paper cut. Every single day, someone's dropping lemon juice in a paper cut of yours, and it's just like everything is grating, and you're just like, oh, God, kill me. You don't even pray, you know, because you're spiritual. You'd say, Lord, don't kill them, but kill me. That sounds better. Have you ever had anybody like that in your life? Probably all of us have at some point. And this is where her life was. And not only that, they were all under the same roof. Enemies under the same roof. Does that sound like many households today? I think it does. And he, she made her miserable, violently agitated. That's literally what it means, irritated with anger and rage. That This is where Panina was doing. She's pushing all the buttons with Hannah. Probably walking by, walking by Elkanah with a, two kids in each arm, and, and uh, El, they're at the dinner table, and she's sitting there with two little infants. And she looks over at Hannah. Hannah, could you get me something to drink? I got my hands full, as you can see, since you're not doing anything, since you're barren. Oh, wait, are you a baroness? <laughs> can you imagine the digs? Can you imagine the... The, the awful things that she did to her. Her rival, rubbing it in her face daily. And this is a result. 
of sin. It's the result of having more than one wife. Certainly when a man and a woman, they have difficulties, there's enough trouble with just two, isn't there? Have you noticed for anyone who's been married, two sinners coming together, one flesh. Does that always happen and everybody's like, oh, this is so great. You know, it's wonderful in the beginning. And then as time goes on, you're like, I'm going to... I can't wait for her to leave the house. I'm going to super glue her curlers to her bed. People get like that. They get ugly. I've never done that to my wife. Number one, she doesn't use curlers. But I could hide her keys. Yeah. You know, Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, A sound heart is, light, uh, is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. In the Song of Sol- Solomon, it says, Jealousy as cruel as the grave, its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. And wrath is cruel and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? And these two ladies are jealous of each other. Remember when I had you underlined, but he loved Hannah? It didn't really say that about Panina, did it? She was certainly useful in giving Elkanah the sons that he wanted, the kids that he wanted. Yeah, he really, I kind of like you, you know. I mean, for heaven's sake, you had children. You should like her more than that. But, but it says that he loved Hannah. And do you think Penina knew that? You better believe it. And he gave her a double portion as a result. And, and you can just see her fuming, holding those kids even tighter. Can you get me something to drink? Did he get the stuff out of the dryer? The sheets are getting wrinkled. The old adage, what goes around comes around. And I love this because as Panina was grilling her, making her feel inferior all the way, all the time God had a plan in his mind. Not to hurt Panina, but it's true that what we sow, we also reap. And what... Hannah does, and, and her heart's attitude was so on display as she goes to the, the temple or the, the, the tabernacle in Shiloh, and she's just pouring out her heart, completely undone, completely broken, looking at herself going, you know, and even starting to wonder, you know, God really doesn't love me. This woman is fruitful. She's having children. My husband is so happy, and I can't even, I burn toast. I can't even do anything right. But Elkanah loved her. And I think that Penina knew that. And that created even more friction between the two of them. And I love that the Lord has a wonderful way of being the great equalizer. One person may have a great talent and is known the world over, but may be a total misfit in social settings. God has a way of equaling the playing field. One woman may not be that attractive, but has great musical ability. One man may not be the most attractive, but as a faithful husband and an excellent father to his children. You know, sometimes we've got to be careful that we don't put someone, anyone, on so high a pedestal. Rock stars, actors, actresses. You know, for some reason, it's like in the last 50 years, or even less than that, actually, we become more aware of the faults of those that we put up on pedestals. And I'm really glad for that, because I think there was a time when we didn't hear about that. All we heard about was the stardom, and they were the star. 
no problems, everything, everything looked perfect, and nobody really said much about it, but now it's front and center, every little thing they do. Did you see the wart on Ricky Martin's nose? He was on Instagram. I can't believe it. I thought he was perfect. You know? Be careful that you don't put someone on too high of a pedestal because more often than not, you don't see the other side. You don't see the glaring weaknesses. We're seeing it more now because everybody's got a camera. Everybody's got a, uh, a video recorder. You know, you can record voices. You can take pictures. You can take videos. Nothing is sacred anymore, unfortunately. But notice verse 7. It says, So it was that year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she, Penina, provoked her, meaning Hannah. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Have you been so grief-stricken that you couldn't even eat? The only time I remember being so grief-stricken that I couldn't eat is when I lost my dad. I was like six years old. Sudden, you know, I just, I mean, I knew he was sick and he had cancer, but I didn't know it was going to take him, you know, because that six-year-old boy doesn't know anything. I figured he'd just go to the hospital, they would operate, he'd be done. We'd go back to fishing in the creeks of Northport, Michigan. Had no idea that he'd be taken, and... As a result of that, you know, just hearing the news, I remember the day walking into my house and my mother at the table telling me that, and I just ran to my room. You know, and you're just, you're so distraught, you're not even hungry. You don't want anything. It's like your tears are your food. That's kind of where Hannah was at. In Proverbs 15, it says, A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. And boy, that is so her right now, as we see her now. In Proverbs 17, 22, A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. you ever feel like that? David, when he committed his sin with Bathsheba, he said, I feel like my bones, I just felt like I, all my moisture in my body was just... I just felt so dry and like a broken piece of, I felt like a piece of biscotti. So it's really interesting just to see the dynamic of life. We're, we're going to stop there because if I go into this next chapter or next uh, section, I would really want to finish it. We'll pick up in uh, chapter or uh, chapter one, verse eight next week, and we'll we'll get quite a bit further. But just to, um, I, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter and read the first several chapters. Read the first two or three chapters of First Samuel before you come back, and then we'll look at them, and you'll you'll just see the dynamic of of the life that Samuel was brought up in. And I love the fact that God brings these characters to to the forefront and. Isn't it true that as you read these things, it really does stir up within you? You see yourself in these characters. You've lived the life of some of these characters. And when we look at these things, again, we, do we look at them and just, okay, that's nice, and just kind of forget about it and go on? No, we're, we're supposed to read these things and put yourself in every person's shoes. Put yourself in Okana's shoes as he is witnessing all of this. We're going to see a little bit later next week how he seems to be oblivious to the fact that these two ladies are having a problem. Because at one point he says, Hannah, what's wrong? 
aren't I worth more like, to you, like more like 10 sons? And if I were Hannah, I would look at him and go, where have you been? Are you clueless? Haven't you seen, I mean, have you been in a house where the friction was so tight you could practically cut it with a knife? I lived in a house like that. You could practically cut it with a knife. The tension was so thick. Do you think the tension was thick in this household? You think the undertones were there? Oh, my. And as we see this in their life, many of you have experienced that. Perhaps right now you're in a situation where some of these things are kind of hitting a little close to home. What is the solution then? We don't read them and and dismiss them. They're here because God is, again, throughout the whole Bible, he shows us who we are, what we're capable of doing He's showing us the whole spectrum, and I I love that. God doesn't even hide the wicked things. I would have loved for him just to have taken the life of David in those, you know, 1 Samuel or or 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I would have loved for him to take those chapters out. It would have made David look like a great guy. It would have changed everybody's attitude about how they view David. But, oh, the fact that he left them in there, oh, my, the depths the depths of character, the things that we can learn. And, and also, doesn't that encourage your heart? Is there anyone here who is a super saint, who has done everything perfectly? Is there anyone here who can say, who can look at the Ten Commandments even and say, never touch me at all? No, I've got all that stuff down. Since a youth, I've, done, I, you know, I've had all that. Isn't that one of the young men who came to Jesus? Yeah, I did all that from my youth. Rich young man, and Jesus knows his issue. He goes, well, really? Well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Oh, uh, well, um, can't do that. It wouldn't be a good stewardship, Lord. Yeah. And I could just see the Lord just looking through him going, hmm, any more excuses? But they're there for our nurture, for our admonition, for us to examine ourselves. Examine yourself as we read this. And again, It'll make your Bible study so much richer if, number one, you pray before you read. But when you read, put yourself in each character and really think about it. Because guess what? They are no different than you and I. A lot of times we read these things and we think that these people walked around in this black and white world where everybody had these robes and everything was just pious and everything was good. Uh, That's not the way it was. There was no black and white world. They saw color just like you and I do. They see things. They had the same feelings, the same desires. They all had a desire to be loved, to to love and to want to be loved. We are all the same, folks. And as you look at these lives, you start looking at yourself and going, wow, Lord, nothing's really changed in all this time. And it really hasn't. It really hasn't. I love there's a verse, I think it's in the, in the Psalms, that says, He fashions our hearts alike. He knows that we are dust. He fashions our hearts alike. We all have the same desires. We all want security. We all want to be loved. We all want to, be, to have the necessities. We don't want to have to struggle and fight and kick. We all want to be loved by people, to be looked up to. We want a a pat on the back when we do something right. 
And believe it or not, we want, to, we, we want to be disciplined when we've done something wrong. It's necessary for that to happen. And God, through it all, reveals us. And he reveals the great gulf between us and him. And he's painting a picture for us of redemption because we'll see that through Samuel, or um, through Samuel's life, we're going to see the first king, and then we're going to see David, and then David, through his life, we're going to see God's grace, and through David's line, all the way to Jesus Christ, God's grace through it all, the plan of redemption. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Samuel. We thank you for this book, Lord, and uh, Lord, there is certainly so much in this book that we are going to enjoy, and It is such a good thing for us to take note of, God. For, Lord, you didn't draw us here tonight just to hear something read and for us to leave unchanged. But rather, you brought us, Lord, that as we read your word, we see a mirror. And, Lord, you challenge us. Lord, help us to not leave the same tonight than when we came in. Help us to leave different and to have a new sobriety about life, Lord. To realize, just like Moses said, he said, my days are few. So, Lord, help us. Strengthen our faith and encourage us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.